Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Halfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. Each month we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. And what's in the air right now seems to be a rather serious fear of Ebola. Uh, many of you may have seen that picture of a woman in a homemade hazmat suit sitting at, I believe, the Dulles Airport in Washington, trying to protect herself and, in fact, scaring everybody in the direct vicinity. Uh, the picture went viral very quickly uh, as a kind of exaggeration of fear. Michael, what did you think about this picture? I mean, it's a cliche, right? How many words does a single picture convey? And I think the uh, challenge is, is that... Uh, if a picture conveys a thousand words, that may be true, but sometimes um, pictures actually are very low information means of communication. Uh, this explains all those cats on YouTube. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And we don't know, uh, you know, you see an image, you don't know the context necessarily. You don't know what happened immediately before, what happened immediately afterwards. And a lot of times these days, the caption it bears on Instagram or Twitter sort of can change the meaning of it in the classic way that, um, you know, any one caption can change any picture at all. So, you know, everyone will have seen an image, people will pass it around like crazy. And it's whether it's uh, the woman in the hazmat suit or or a picture of a cat, or a picture of a presidential candidate getting a shoe shine at an, at a, uh, on an airport runway, as went around uh, uh, last time to Mitt Romney's chagrin. Or the picture a few weeks ago of Obama with a cup of coffee in his hand, saluting the troops that they yeah, called yeah. Cappuccino Gate. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so, um, uh, so they're casual, which makes them essentially, potentially a little more toxic. In the old days, when you had a picture, it was disseminated in the news. It went from the picture morgue to the picture editor's desk. It was cropped. It has grease pencil on it, and yeah. on the back, it had this sort of palimpsest of writing where it went. It was for the Macy's Day Parade, and then it came out for Kennedy's birthday, and, and you could actually read through history when that picture had been used. That also alerted people in the normal news cycle, these people who were, who were licensed to practice actual news distribution, to actually know how to caption a photograph. But today, because of the casualness with which we disseminate pictures, captions don't actually give us the wherewithal to infer what the context is. So these pictures are out there, they're viral, they're panic-inducing, and they're disenfranchised from the reality from which they began. What if that woman was in a Halloween costume? Yeah, exactly. Maybe she wasn't no. in a hazmat suit at all, but suddenly exactly. we all think this is terrible. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. I think one of the things designers do so well, uh, typically, is, is actually make complex information clear. So I know that there were these documents for hospital workers with protective suits and how they were, in fact, meant to use them and wear them and what the appropriate protocols were for actually coming in contact with people who were infected. Did you see any of these images? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um as usual, you know, if you've ever gone to the emergency room in a local suburban hospital or in a city hospital, it's not a um, reassuring experience in terms of our first line of defense against a fatal epidemic. You know, I think that um, uh, the procedures always seem irregular, and I think just even seeing that list of things to do just seems so confounding. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, in what's often a fairly chaotic environment, particularly an urban emergency room, someone simply showing up there and kind of, you know, counting on that uh, moment to be sort of the screening moment that actually identifies potential people who might be uh, in danger to themselves and to others is sort of a discouraging prospect. 
They tend to be really information heavy too, which I think puts a lot of people off. And of course, you have to assume that English is not everybody's first language, even though most of these posters are, are written in English. I know that uh, President Obama went on the air last week and gave a very factual sort of list of what to look for, what to worry about, what not to worry about. We know if we go online to any source that actually has real news, such as the CDC, they actually have posters. I wouldn't go so far as to say they're good posters. They're pretty boilerplate posters, but they show and they they actually illustrate in no uncertain terms um, the kinds of things you need to look for. Interestingly, in these posters, which we'll put a link to on our website, they're very directional. They're very much like the food pyramid in their kind of didactic use of information. Uh, I've also noticed that the ones that are in fact intended to be issued in parts of West Africa that um, have more concern, need have more concern, because that's in fact where the epi epidemic is spreading. The visual language for these posters is very specific to those communities. So the people don't look perhaps like they're in Western dress or they aren't Caucasian. I think this idea coming back to what designers do best and making things clear, there's an interesting intersection between that and how you control panic. What do you think of, of that, how we might actually address that? At the root of all this, I think, is this thing that I think designers, graphic designers in particular, are good at doing, which is how you visualize something invisible. When you were talking about how the po you know, about those posters, I was thinking about how they could be improved. And uh, you know, if you've been to a restaurant, there's always one of those Heimlich maneuver posters, right? But there's something so same graphic <laughs> language. Yeah, and there's something so 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 like analog about the Heimlich maneuver. You know, right. someone puts a piece of food in their mouth, they swallow it the wrong way, it gets lodged in their uh, uh, esophagus. You squeeze them a certain way and the thing comes popping out. You can see, and then what pops out is like a chicken bone or a piece of chewing gum or like a little dumpling or something. So the thing that I think is just so scary about Ebola is that you can't see it, you know, and so you're trying to ward off something invisible. It goes really to the heart of every horror movie you've ever seen. It's like not the things you can see that are the scariest, but the invisible things, the ghosts that actually give you nightmares. I think that's the scary thing, that you can't see it. And so panic seeps in where there's a vacuum. Yeah. What do you think the, the designers could do or what might be a design language that could penetrate the public in a way so as to prevent this kind of widespread panic? This is interesting. As, as, as you're talking, I'm picturing all sorts of different things, you know, from the, the kind of clarity of a simple information poster that could be distributed to every hospital that were like, you know, step by step, what you could do. The similar to the ones they have now, but just as perfectly designed as we could possibly make them. That would help. I also was picturing, you know, is there like sort of a public health campaign that could go out there, you know, World War II style, you know, um, loose lips sink ships, et cetera, to sort of um, uh, kind of calm the public about this, but that actually sort of, I think, uh, what's funny is that I really don't think that like a, a marketing campaign would actually be effective. I think that we're in a different time now. And people actually uh, would view that, you know, more as um, potentially a piece of sinister mind control than as kind of the, the dissemination of information. I actually think getting information not directly to the panicky public but the people that kind of work with them, whether it's uh, the media or healthcare workers or people like that, I think those are the people that actually are the gatekeepers for what's getting out there in the public imagination and are in the best position to really get the truth out there as well. In a moment where we're so saturated with images, with Instagram and uh, picture feeds and Tumblr, one wants to maybe reconsider the power of the word. And in the context of Ebola and panic and managing panic in a graphic sense, 
not uninteresting to go back and look at what they did in 1918 when the great flu epidemic claimed so many thousands of lives all over the world. And then later during the WPA, when there were posters, I think, Michael, you said, you know, loose lip sync ships, how they were able to contain all sorts of public health epidemics from, you know, syphilis to typhoid. Uh, but I'm in particular thinking of the ones from 1918, which were so didactic and so specific because they didn't rely on any illustration. There was no photograph. There was no picture. There was no color. It was just black and white, words on paper, make no mistake, do this now. And I think that that has something very interesting to do with our next topic, which is B.J. Novak's excellent new book called The Book with No Pictures. Uh, most books for adults have no pictures in them, but this is for children, and he's really operating on a similar premise, which is how language can tell a story by being as pictorial as any image, maybe even better. It might seem like no fun to have someone read you a book with no pictures. It probably seems boring and serious, except here is how books work. Everything the words say, the person reading the book has to say, no matter what. So this is a kind of a out of left field way of working. Um, he's using typography. There's a wonderful video online, which we will uh, link for you on Design Observer to watch if you haven't already. How is he using type in this book in a way that's potentially compelling for children? For one thing, there's the surprise of a, a children's book kind of operating instead of, um, you know, like most children's books, where children's books essentially are so defined because they're, picture books, and this one is just all typography, very simply done, white backgrounds, uh, uh, black type for the most part. It has a little bit of a, um, of a charming kind of a, you know, kindergarten level meta quality too, because it's very self-conscious of the fact that it has no pictures in it, right? Right, very self-conscious, and it certainly falls in the tradition of books by many graphic designers, graphic designers who love typography, and for whom it is sort of the common currency of what we make. Paul Rand did Sparkle and Spin, I think. What year would that have been, Michael? Do you remember? In the 60s sometime? Early 60s, yeah, yeah. And uh, Termaif and Geismar have uh, now recently, uh, I think um, Chronicle Books has re-released Watching Words Move, which is was their typographic attempt to actually show language in pursuit of making itself known by actually migrating through the pages of the book. I think the assumption is, is that children learn pictures before words, but if you can get them excited about letter forms, you get them excited about language. Yeah, if you get them excited about letter forms, you get them excited about language, you get them excited about reading. Oddly enough, there's this tension, I think, between uh, words and pictures in the way we read, even though we are becoming a more image-saturated uh, image um, society, indeed, as we, uh, as we say over and over again. The idea that you can communicate with words, and words can be as vivid as pictures, is, I think, every writer's kind of deeply held secret or not-so-secret conviction. And, you know, if you think about even book covers, the difference between a book cover that has an image on it and one that's all type, you know, the all type ones tend to have a kind of seriousness of purpose, uh, you know, that are making a greater claim on your attention. And I remember... Uh, even as a uh, you know as a as a kid coming across uh, the old copy of Catcher in the Rye, which used to have maroon cover and just yellow type on it, it just said you know 
the catcher in the rye, J.D. Salinger. I remember thinking, this must be a really, really important book. The only other book I knew that had a cover like that was the Bible, basically. And so I think words have power. I, I knew that's where you were going. <laughs> words have power. And I, and I think also in this generation, these kids are growing up knowing how to swipe as soon as they know how to turn a page. Yep, they are yep. screen-based. They are literate in ways that, of course, every successive generation be- gains a new kind of literacy based on the technology available to them. But for these kids, you know, YouTube is old news. And I do wonder, watching that video and seeing the performance aspect of the language, which, because B.J. Novak is an actor, he certainly was able to rise to that challenge. And those of us who have children or have had any access to children know that little kids love when you read to them. We don't do this so much when we're older or we put our older kids to sleep. We put our students to sleep. But the idea that the words are big and bold and become a kind of visual onomatopoeia, they become, I mean, every designer knows, I think the relationship between form and content is sort of at the sweet spot epicenter mm-hmm. of what it is we try to make. But in this case, it's almost like those letter forms are the actors in a play. It's really interesting to say, because I didn't think of this before, but the fact that uh, Novak is a, you know, a screenwriter and an actor, um, I'm reminded that every performance basically begins with a script. And most actors feel the best scripts are ones that aren't really prescriptive. You know, uh, the stage direction is minimal. Even the description of what the settings are are fairly minimal. And what's there are just words that are open to interpretation. And I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if subconsciously or consciously uh, B.J. Novak was really thinking that in a way um, this book in effect was like a script for a performance that could be a parent reading it to a child or could be just a kid reading it to him or herself. And the action the vivid live action um, unfolds in your head as you're reading this uh, uh, simple black and white script the same way um, every movie you've ever seen, every play you've ever seen starts with the script the same way. Uh, Speaking of spectacles and the role of the script, Michael, you recently saw the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, uh, which recently opened on Broadway, having come from London. What did you think? I thought it was amazing, and as a designer, I thought it was particularly amazing. Uh, The play's based on a remarkable book by Mark Haddon that came out a few years ago. It essentially takes place inside the mind of an autistic child who uh, is solving a little crime that happened in his neighborhood, but in the solution of that crime, he actually enters the adult world, has these fairly astonishing adventures, and it's all seen through his eyes, and it all basically takes place within his unique mind. And it's just a remarkable, very moving, very memorable book. And also, when I read it, I would say it was inherently impossible to do in any other form but a book. Uh, It couldn't be a movie, and it certainly couldn't be a stage play. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, The production that's currently on Broadway, which, as you said, moved here from London, is really remarkable. It's um, directed by uh, Marianne Elliott, but the real genius of it uh, for me, well, I mean, the performances are great, everything is great, but the the designer is a uh, uh, woman named Bunny Christie. The lighting designer is Paul Constable. And um, uh, the videos are by uh, Finn Ross. The sound is by Ian Dickinson. And the sound, the videos, the set all really come together quite remarkably. If you're a graphic designer particularly, or even any kind of designer, when you walk into the theater, uh, you will be quite um, 
immediately set at ease because the entire set beyond the proscenium is one giant, um, it's a white cubic space divided into a regular grid with vertical and horizontal lines that cover the, uh, the three walls and the, uh, uh, the ceiling. And uh, uh, those are the surfaces upon which these projections play. They conceal doors, they conceal drawers, they conceal steps. And um, they sort of, in a way, are meant very literally and very visually to be the, uh, the the, the mental environment, the consciousness in which the whole story unfolds. So they managed to create this remarkable feat of immersing you as an audience member inside the mind of this child. And it really is um, an audacious achievement, and it is fundamentally a design achievement. What they've managed to do is figure out a way to make visual and make manifest uh, something that is inherently, you know, only exists in the imagination. You know, what is consciousness? How do we perceive reality? And, um, and you sort of see this on stage. For all that, it's really also quite fun, very enthralling, and just a great night at the theater. It seems to me also that because to be on the autistic spectrum is to read people and social cues and physical cues in such a profoundly different way that the choreography and staging of the interpersonal connections on stage with these people is very specifically executed. And that somehow there's this tension between the grid of the mind, this very sort of truncated small um, stage, as you beautifully explained it, Michael, and, and the complexity of not being able to understand the outside world, which is represented by all those bodies. In a way, what's great about it is that it takes advantage of uh, what we already understand as the artificiality of of stage performance, you know, I mean, part of the miracle of live theater is that uh, um, you're sitting in chairs, you're sitting in seats in the audience, and then um, up on stage uh, comes one character and another, and they say things to each other, and then you're supposed to believe it's really happening, you know, and you know that it's not. You can see that it's not. Uh, you know that it's not a documentary. There's nothing disguised in the fact that it is literally staged. Uh, however, um, I think what this particular play does is it uses what we know about that kind of sense of displacement really as one element in helping us into the mind of this child. And, you know, we, along with him, kind of decode the behavior of the other actors on the, uh, uh, on the stage and sort of uh, are able to kind of both observe him and sort of see him be him observing the others at the same time. When you talk about it this way, it reminds me that so many people who work visually, uh, certainly designers, architects, set designers, all of us work on screens all the time. And when we're walking, we have screens in front of us. What we don't have is the big black room behind us. We don't have the immersion, even when the fourth wall is, is broken down and, I, and, and in this sort of theater in the round situation. It is an immersive experience in ways that designing websites and designing uh, small things for portable screens never can be. But we can certainly aspire to it. Is there anything that you saw that made you think differently about the work you want to do or that you are seeing your partners doing or your students doing or how you might actually imagine the screen in everyday life to be different as a result of this performance? In so many creative forms of creative endeavor, we are separated from the audience or in the case of designing, you know, uh, a website or an app, the users, as they're called, um, you know, those people are kind of remote and you sort of get to encounter them in the form of focus groups or complaints or just whatever. The thing that actually always strikes me about live theater is that, uh, you know, there's no escaping the actual reaction of the audience. And you can tell 
if you've ever gone to a, a good play, a bad play, a performance that sort of has is good in spots and bad in spots, if you're sitting in the audience, you can tell exactly when it starts to go wrong. And believe me, the people doing the play can tell exactly when it goes wrong, too. There's something about the nature of that feedback that I find really, really um, instructive as a designer and, and, and something that would be uh, such a great thing to figure out a way to bring that in more immediately to any of the work that designers do. Uh, I think architects get to experience it when they watch people using a building or a space. Certainly fashion designers get to see it when they see people uh, uh, wearing clothes, product designers, etc. I think graphic designers a lot of times you sort of uh, will do this work, uh, put it out there, and then the effect it has on people is a little bit remote. I'm a graphic designer, so I'm particularly conscious of that. But I think that whole relationship of cause and effect is an interesting one. Interaction designers certainly try to do that sort of, you know, even something as simple as you click on the button and you hear the button click back at you, that there's this kind of immediate response yep, mechanism. Yep. But it, it becomes kind of predictable. And I think what you're talking about, which we don't have, but certainly I think aspire to have, is drama, scale, and live performance. We're not live with our users, audience, readers, when we disseminate the things that we make in the world. We don't see them doing it unless we, as you rightly say, I guess architects can see someone bumping into a wall would certainly give them a lesson about how to build a wall next time. But I think the thing about theater is that it's like music too. They have these constraints and uh, within those constraints, certain things happen. There's a kind of entropy um, that happens when, you know, mm. based on the borders of that experience, kind of like a game board. I mean, yeah, I always I thought know. it was interesting that game boards have are square because everybody is presumed to have the same amount of real estate, so nobody mm -hmm. tips their hand. And yeah, in a yeah. sense, that's what theater is. You've got the script, you've got the actors. We don't actually see the experience of that from, from our end of the design world. We don't. Well, that's, I think, why uh, graphic designers and advertising people and people that work in visual communication tend to put such a high premium on the art of presentation. You know, we never get to actually go out and explain what we're doing to the general public or the end users of the things we're doing. But there's always a moment where we're in a boardroom and I'm presenting to a client and uh, the hype that attends, uh, you know, those moments is just so extreme. And if you uh, watch the uh, AMC television show Mad Men. I knew you were not going <laughs> to let this conversation go without a reference you, to Mad Men. You know that, uh, uh, you know, when Don Draper, Peggy Olsen get in a conference and they're presenting a new ad campaign, you know, that is like the equivalent of like a, um, you know, a mob assassination is in The Sopranos. That's what the fans really watch for. That's the blood they're thirsty for. They want to see <laughs> those it. boardroom encounters. That's right. You know? It's not the sex. It's the, it's the Kodak carousel. Yeah, and I think um, uh, in the very first episode, there's a moment where uh, Don Draper's trying to come up with an idea for uh, Lucky Strike Cigarettes, and he actually gets in a conversation with uh, a waiter in a bar and says, what do you smoke, and starts talking about cigarettes. And I believe in, you know, the... All the years that Mad Men's been in the air, that's the only time an actual consumer's opinion is elicited about advertising. Everything else is just pleasing clients, impressing each other, trying to get awards, doing all this stuff that uh, is blissfully unaware of the outside world that all this uh, stuff we do is affecting. Right, so the presentation, the presentation is like opening night, right? And yeah, so if you bomb, night, if you bomb night. out of town, like that's it, you got to go back to the drawing board. Oh, it's a one-time only performance, yeah, with the stakes very high. Exactly. Jessica, before you were a designer, um, you actually worked as a scriptwriter yourself, did you not? I did. And, uh, and for anything I might have seen? I certainly hope not. 
But I was, a, I was an actress starting out and uh, didn't hold out a lot of hope for my um, capacity to withstand the clearly highly weighted against success path that that was going to lead me to. So, so I somehow fell into writing scripts. And the scripts I wrote were very visual. I was always writing a lot of description. And somebody once said to me, it's like there's a designer and you struggling to get out. And so I came back to what had been another great interest of mine, which was design. But I think that as I look back at the last 25 years of working as a designer, I've always been drawn to things that are theatrical, to graphic design that makes people stop and look, to campaigns and messages and installations and museum shows and research and all sorts of things circumscribing the design professions that somehow do to uh, unsuspecting but willing readers and audience members what your experience was going to see the curious incident of the dog in nighttime, which is to say that I think design is theater. I really do. Well, on that note, on that final note, Let's end for uh, this episode. The Observatory's a uh, new monthly show from Design Observer. Our website, designobserver.com, this is designobserver, one word, .com, has links to uh, B.J. Novak's book, The Book With No Pictures, and some of the other things we talked about today, so you can see what we're talking about as you listen to what we're saying. In between episodes, you can keep up with us on Facebook, on Twitter, at Design Observer, and visit our site. If you're hearing this for the first time, you can follow us on SoundCloud. Uh, we'll be sure to let you know, and you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you're not listening already, you might want to check out our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. The Observatory is sponsored by MailChimp. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music, and our executive producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. See you next time.